Hello, and welcome to another episode of Over My Dead Pod. This is your host for today, Kate Carter. I'm Kylie Colwell. And I'm Holly Spear. And per usual, ladies, I am just going to go ahead and jump right into my story this week. So this is the murder of Rachel Hoffman. Do you guys know this one? I think I might. Okay. The name sounds a little familiar. Sounds very familiar. Yeah. Okay. Kylie, you don't know this one, do you? I don't think I do. Okay. I didn't know it either until I looked it up and still after like going through everything, it was not a story that I knew, but I'm glad that I do know of it now because it does come from the state of Florida. Rachel Morningstar Hoffman was born on December 17th, 1984 in Clearwater, Florida. She was an only child to her parents, Margie Wise and Irv Hoffman. And now ever since she was little, she was very vibrant, energetic, a fun loving girl, like very free spirited. She was always a really good student and she always was active in extracurricular activities like piano, martial arts, softball, etc. Rachel's parents divorced when she was really young, but they both stayed in the same area to help raise her. So Rachel was not only close to her parents, but to her stepdad as well. She came from a really good family, like upbringing, like there was nothing crazy or horrible that happened like most of our other stories. Rachel's family was also Jewish and very active in her family's temple, which is where she met a lot of her childhood friends. Once Rachel was in high school, she did smoke weed occasionally, as a lot of high schoolers did, especially in Florida, but she maintained good grades throughout her education. After her high school graduation, Rachel decided to attend Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida, which is the capital of the state. She eventually packed up and left for college, and when she did, Rachel left behind a five-page letter for her dad, ensuring him that she would be just fine and she was only a phone call away which like melts my heart. I think that's the cutest thing ever. So in college, she was able to maintain an AB average and she was going, she was on track to complete a dual degree program as well. So like, she's a smart girl. She's a normal girl, smart girl. I mean, she went to FSU. That's a hard school to get into. I do want to give like a little heads up to everyone listening. The rest of the story does take place in Tallahassee. And this was in the early 2000s. So obviously a lot of things have changed since then, but man, oh man, would I have hated to be in Tallahassee during this time period. And it just really pisses me off. The story is going to piss you off. Tallahassee is going to piss you off. So I'm sorry for all those people that love Tallahassee. During her time in college, Rachel was a bit of a hippie. She enjoyed going to local concerts that included bands like the Grateful Dead. She often saged her apartment with her roommates and she wore lots of like fun, funky clothing pieces. One of her signature clothing pieces was a signature fuzzy purple hat. Rachel also had two cats that she considered her children. One was named Jimi Hendrix and the other one was Bentley. And these cats even had their own Facebook pages. Thought you guys would like that. Early 2000s having Facebook pages for your pets. Like that was, she was ahead of, you know, our time. So Rachel ended up getting accepted into a graduate program for counseling But she wanted to do something a little bit different. She wanted to attend culinary school and combine her passion with helping others with counseling and the culinary arts. She really wanted to try this new approach for counseling that would include helping kids 
who don't respond well to regular counseling. And she would do that by like including cooking in the sessions. Love the idea. Good for Rachel. But to continue, Rachel's story really took a downward spiral, unfortunately, starting on February 22nd, 2007. On this day, Rachel was pulled over for going eight miles over the speed limit. And for whatever reason, the police decided to search her car, which I will say the only time that the search of a vehicle is allowed during a traffic stop is when police have reasonable suspicion that like something in the car is illegal, either by smell or view, I think for the state of Florida, at least. And so in this case, it's kind of assumed that when Rachel was pulled over, the, the police most likely smelled weed. And therefore, they had reasonable suspicion to believe that Rachel had weed in the car. So during the search, the police did find 25 grams of marijuana, which is about an ounce. And to give listeners like an idea who may not know about marijuana or weed in Colorado, where weed is now legal, you're allowed to have this exact amount on your person at any given time. It's basically like if you take a sandwich bag and just put weed in it, that that's that's how much an ounce is. So as a result of this search and seizure, Rachel was arrested on the spot and the judge ended up putting her on drug court supervision. For those that don't really know like marijuana laws and where things are at with legalization, Florida still to this day is unfortunately one of the states that has the largest population for marijuana arrests. Even last year in 2022, 34% of all arrests in Florida were due to marijuana, which is like mind blowing. Not going to get into a rant, but I really hate that. That's still a thing when there are so many states that have it legalized, not to mention, unfortunately, the color of your skin does matter a lot when it comes to these kinds of arrests as well. And so it's just really shit. And I hope that we can get this changed sooner than later. I believe in the state of Florida, it's on the ballot for 2024 to legalize. But back in 2007, marijuana was still considered illegal everywhere, and it had much harsher circumstances revolved around arrests. Rachel's probation program was set to a year, and she was supposed to pass monthly drug tests and was not supposed to be around anyone who used or sold drugs. If she ended up completing the program, her charges would completely go away. But in the in like late March of 2008, one of her friend's fathers died suddenly, and Rachel dropped everything to go be with her friend at the funeral. By doing this, she accidentally missed one of her mandatory drug tests, and the police responded to this by throwing Rachel in jail for three days. During jail, her three days of jail, Rachel's eyes were really open to how like nonviolent offenders were treated, and in particular in the state of Florida. After all of this, Rachel continued to smoke weed and sold it to friends on the side as well, but she wasn't moving large quantity by any means. Like she wasn't a drug dealer, you know, that's just, and everything I read on her, it was literally like, oh, if her friends text her and was like, hey, can I pick up some weed? Like she would have extra to be able to like give to them or sell to them. Wasn't a drug dealer by any means, but her recent stay in jail made her very selective on who she would sell to or who she was around. And unfortunately, she wasn't able to stay under the radar for very long because someone, don't know who, gave the Tallahassee Police Department a tip stating that Rachel was selling weed out of her apartment. And because of this tip, the police put Rachel on surveillance and at some point ended up getting a warrant. They collected evidence that was found in her trash, which is like a whole nother thing to also have to get into. But a hot tip for all you listeners out there, 
the law permits police to go through your trash once it's left outside. Police don't need probable cause to go through your trash because there's no reasonable expectation for privacy once the trash is placed outside for the public to be able to use. We've seen it in so many cases that like people had documents in their trash or like names of stuff that were leading them to cases and they were found out because the police just simply went through their trash. Hey, it's giving us quite the criminal procedure refresher today. This is really a furiating case. So I'm I'm just trying to get all you listeners to understand like there's a lot of rules that are happening, but a lot of stupid shit too. So yeah, they're treating this girl like she's freaking Pablo Escobar or something. I mean, going through her trash, like surveilling her, like, and she's just got these small quantities of weed. They have a lot of time. Like who tips off somebody for selling weed? That's like, that's like, I can't even imagine. And you said she was only sending it or giving it to like friends who would text (laughs) her. So it was one of her friends. Yes. Interesting. Maybe they're just like watching her really closely because she's on drug court. But I mean, why is she even in drug court for that? You know, for an ounce of weed. As a result of this warrant, on April 17th, 2008, Tallahassee police raided Rachel's apartment and they ended up finding six next. <laughs> yes, this is ridiculous. So they they raided her apartment. They found six ecstasy pills, three Valium pills, and 5.5 ounces of marijuana. This is really not that much. The Tallahassee police, their place was that after they found all of this during their raid, they charged Rachel with possession of cannabis with intent to sell, possession of ecstasy, maintaining a drug house, possession of a controlled substance with intent to sell, and possession of drug paraphernalia. Unfortunately, some of these charges are considered felonies in the state of Florida, which is understandable. Like, maintaining a drug house is... (laughs) Sounds like a horrible crime. And that is a felon and I felony. And I understand that. But she was not maintaining a drug house. Like that is the most absurd thing ever. So anyways, the police told Rachel that they could make all of these charges go away if she acted as a confidential informant for them. So Rachel was not arrested. She was charged with the crimes, but the police were threatening that they would take her to court and convict her. Unless she decided to become a CI for the listeners, confidential informant. I'm probably going to either say that or most likely CI for the rest of the story. And because she wasn't being charged with these crimes right away, the police did not have to Mirandize her, meaning she didn't have to have her Miranda rights read to her. And that also includes part of the Miranda rights includes telling Rachel that she could ask for an attorney at any time and that she also had the right to refuse to talk. So the police actually told Rachel not to contact her attorney and that if she did, her attorney would tell the drug court about the raid that just occurred and the court would extend her time in the program, which is super shady and not legal in any manner. Like that is just a flat out lie by the police. In an interview given by ABC, the Florida state attorney said that in regards to Rachel being turned into a confidential informant, he was not told this at any time that this was happening And legally, he should have been informed before any decision is made on a confidential informant. The Tallahassee chief of police stated that it would have been a good call to let the state attorney know ahead of time, but just didn't think about doing it. If Rachel wouldn't do the CI work, she was looking at a four to five year prison sentence 
if convicted of all of her crimes. And obviously that scared the living shit out of her, which it would anyone, you know, she's 23 years old. So she agreed to become a CI. The police said that Rachel chose to do this, but with everything that they were threatening her with, it really doesn't seem like she had a choice, especially like not talking to a lawyer. Like you don't know in the moment you're like, yeah, I'll be a CI. I don't want to get charged or convicted with anything. The cop who gave Rachel the deal was a guy named investigator Ryan Pender. Investigator Pender told Rachel that if the CI work, which was going to be a bust, went wrong at any point, the worst that could happen would that Rachel would be fake arrested in the moment. Investigator Ryan said that at this point, he put his phone number in Rachel's phone and listed himself as Pooh Bear in case a target saw the name on the phone and wouldn't be suspicious. I just wanted to throw that in because I thought that was creepy AF. I think that's that's more suspicious. Yes. Don't like that one. Not going to like them for the rest of the story either. So and the Tallahassee Police Department, well, they decided to give Rachel no police training, no firearm training, no courses, nothing. So she wasn't prepared to do any type of CI bust that the police were about to ask her to do. The chief police stated that Rachel was never coerced or threatened into becoming a CI with charges. And Chief Jones said that his department doesn't threaten people into becoming CIs. And as far as training, well, no one provides training for CIs because that's not part of the program. Part of Rachel's gig while being in drug court was that she was not allowed to associate with anyone who did drugs, much less buy them. How is she supposed to be a CI then? Yes. Yes, exactly. And this was a contract she had to sign in drug court. So if the police at any point wanted to use a drug court person as a CI, they would have to obtain permission from the state attorney's office, which we know at this point, the state attorney's office was never told. So the police originally wanted Rachel to set up one of her friends with a fake drug deal, but obviously she didn't want to do that. Go girl. And in another case, police wanted to set up Rachel's friend, Dan, who was this super low level like weed dealer who occasionally sold other drugs. When police told Rachel to go to the station and have her call Dan, her friend, to set up to buy ecstasy, she left the station and called Dan on her personal phone and like let him know that it was going to be like a police thing. And so he found out it was a setup. And at some point, don't know how this happened, Dan also agreed to becoming a CI so that he could work off like some of his own charges that he also had with the Tallahassee Police Department. So the Tallahassee Police Department is just like throwing everybody. They're like, hey, you're selling weed? Well, be a CI. Otherwise, we're going to make you a felon. Based off of how Rachel handled the situation with her friend Dan, the police were aware that Rachel had at least told one person that should have automatically like disqualified her from like continuing the CI work. That's like the number one rule. You you can't tell someone that you're a confidential informant. So the Tallahassee Police Department decided they wanted Rachel to bust some of the people that supplied her weed. And of course, she didn't want to do that because she knew these people closely and they were friends of hers and none of them were violent offenders. So she didn't want to ruin their lives. So she asked her friend Dan if he knew any of the people who were, quote unquote, bad guys that deserved to be caught. And that's how Rachel found out about 23-year-old Danello Bradshaw and his twin brother-in-law, 26-year-old Andre Green. Both of these men were convicted felons, and they worked at a local window tent shop, but also dealt drugs and guns. On April 21st, 2008, 
Rachel and Dan went to the police station where Dan told investigator Pender about the two guys working at the tent shop who were these big drug dealers and other illegal items, including guns. After Rachel and Dan left the station that day, they visited the tent shop, which is a no-no. And Dan introduced Rachel to Danello and Andre. Rachel and Dan visiting the two targets after leaving the police station was also a big violation of their CI agreements. Once again, they should have been terminated as confidential informants. It's Tallahassee Police Department policy and practically any police department policy that if a CI proves to be unfit or untrustworthy to work for their agreement, it should be immediately terminated. But again, the department decided to not follow through with protocol, which you'll see in this whole story. And Rachel went back to the station the next day on the 22nd. And this is when the final deal was set up with the police. Rachel made a controlled call to Andre to set up the drug deal. The operation was going to be a buy-bust operation, meaning Rachel was going to buy drugs from the targets while the police watched, and then the police would move in after the deal to arrest the two suspects. So pretty simple, but but the police didn't want Rachel just to do a simple weed deal because they decided that they wanted to get Rachel to take out $13,000 and use it to buy 1,300 ecstasy pills, two to three ounces of cocaine, in a semi-automatic pistol. drug dealer is going to believe that this little 23-year-old girl is buying this. Thank you. That's what I... I was like, two to three ounces of cocaine and a gun? In Florida, can't you go get a gun yourself? Like, what is... So, to this date, Rachel had never even touched drugs in that amount, let alone a gun. And ultimately, the police just wanted a big bust, and they wanted something that was going to, like, make headlines and make the department look good. And in fact, in 2007, this was set to be one of the largest busts in Tallahassee history. I feel like I don't need to say this, but this transaction was on a really large scale from a first-time buyer who happened to be some random college-age girl, which gave immediate red flags to the drug dealers like Danello and Andre. The police reassured Rachel over and over that the worst thing that could happen is that Rachel would be fake arrested during the buy-bust deal. They told her that they would be watching her at all times and that if anything went wrong, the bust would be aborted. They told her repeatedly that she would be safe because they thought they could keep her safe. But Rachel's boyfriend at the time was not so convinced, as no one else in this world would be. And he thought from the start that Rachel would probably get robbed just due to the nature of this deal. Rachel even told her mom at some point that she was about to work with the police on something, but that it was dangerous and wanted to let her know ahead of time so that she could send her love. Which, like, if I told my mom that, <laughs> i get my ass handed to me. Like, my mom would be like, absolutely not. Like, you are not working. With- well, I don't know. Maybe now. But if I- when I was 23, my mom would be like, absolutely not. There's no and way. Like, your mom would just come get you. She would. Be- she would, she would a hundred in 3am in the morning. My mom would put a pillow over my head and like, be like, you're coming home with me. You know, like there's no love you, love you, Yolanta. But, um, so on April 25th, 2008, Rachel actually graduated from FSU with degrees in psychology and criminal justice, which like, when I read that, I was like, you know what? We'd be friends with this girl. Like Rachel seems like right up our alley. And she was planning on going to culinary school in Arizona after her drug court program ended. 
Once the CI bust was finished, Rachel could put this whole thing behind her and move on with her life. Because remember, like she was, all the charges were going to go away as soon as this bust was good. So the sting operation began on May 5th. Rachel went to the tent shop, wired up to talk to Danello, and they agreed that the three of them, Rachel, Danello, and Andre, would do the deal and swap on May 7th, two days later, and that the meeting spot would be set for Danello's parents' house, which would be on the outskirts of Tallahassee. And they also said that Walmart would be used as an alternative spot if they had to. Rachel told the men that the drugs were for her friends that were visiting from Miami and that the gun was for her own protection. That's a lot of ecstasy pills and Coke for friends that are visiting. So the two men agreed to sell her the drugs and that auto semi-automatic pistol, but Danello and Andre never actually planned on selling Rachel anything. They were actually going to rob her and give her a bag full of aspirin instead. Two days before the operation on May 5th, 25 caliber handgun was stolen from the car of a customer at the tent shop and Danello was the prime suspect in the theft, which is something that the police knew of. Rachel spent the entire morning with her boyfriend on May 7th, 2008, the day of the bust. Her boyfriend was very anxious about what was about to go down as anyone would be just like she had been doing before. She kept telling her boyfriend over and over again that she was going to be fine and that the police would keep her completely safe and no one needed to worry. So once Rachel arrived to the station, she was going to be wired up. But here's the thing. Love this. The person who normally handled all of the wiring situation for the police in these type of operations was out of office that day. So Rachel had to be wired up by someone who didn't know what they were doing. And because of this, Rachel was improperly wired and it failed as soon as she left the station. There was also a wire placed in Rachel's purse, which is something that is against police policy. But keep in mind, also, Rachel's carrying $13,000 cash in her purse. So if the targets do rob her, which is a very likely scenario, they would see the wire placement in the purse. And that would be a horrible like giveaway that Rachel was a CI. You would think like they would test the wire before they leave the police station. Well, it was someone yeah. who didn't know how to set up the wire. So they they probably were just like, it's good. You're good. I don't know what I'm doing. And... One of them stopped working. So at this point, we only have one wire working, which is the one in the purse. Originally, the deal was going to go down at Danello's parents' house. But once Rachel got to the police station to get ready, the targets called her and changed the location to a place called Forest Meadows Park. This is a public park. Rachel wasn't familiar with the area at all, but police seemed to be fine with the location and told her to continue with the deal. Police ended up setting up two arrest teams in a vehicle to block the target's exit, and a surveillance vehicle. Along with the team at the park, they sent four officers in separate cars, and they even had a DEA plane flying over the park, but the trees in the park were so dense that the canopy basically made it impossible for the plane to see anything. So now I will give kudos. It's the only kudos I'll give in the entire story. They did send out quite a force. Like, it, that's a lot. When I read that, I was like, okay. Like they even got a plane like flying over like this is this is okay. They're doing you know, they're sending out a lot of officers for this stupid buy bust anyways. Wouldn't that be more suspicious? I mean, I don't know how crowded this park usually is, but I'm assuming these guys picked it because it would be low key. And then all of a sudden there's just a bunch of I was going to say, I assume it's not police cars. I assume they're all undercover. 
but like they're probably not getting out of their cars yeah but i think you could still like tell if someone's in the car even if the windows are tinted like there's right. just people sitting in the cars in the parking lot i would be suspicious yeah i i was just more impressed with the plane <laughs> i was like oh they even got a plane for this like this is yeah but also what was that for you can't even I don't know because like how did the yeah because they didn't well they changed it to the park and like if there's trees in the park obviously that's not going to work that well because you can't see it so then that's a whole waste oh, they're just gonna like paraglide down and arrest them i don't get that but i think <laughs> the plane is more for like surveillance capturing so like videotaping and everything they're not like parachuting someone down there to okay. <laughs> oh my god could you imagine that would be quite a scene so after Rachel was wired up, she began to drive to the new location in the park. At 6.28 p.m., Danello and Andre called Rachel and told her that they had just arrived at the park. At 6.34 p.m., Rachel texted her boyfriend, quote, I just got wired up. Wish me luck. I'm on my way. He replied, good luck, babe. Call me and let me know what's up. Rachel then texted her boyfriend back, quote, saying, it's about to go down, which that's uh, you know she she didn't know but it is about to go down so at 6 41 p.m rachel called investigator ryan pender and told him that the targets were again changing locations this time rachel was told to meet them at a plant nursery which was about 1.5 miles north of the park at the same time rachel turned into what she thought was forest meadows park but instead was another park called meridian at 6.43 p.m., investigator Ryan Pender told Rachel on the phone that she had made a wrong turn, and he slowed down in his police vehicle to allow Rachel to pull over and head to the correct park. Obviously, there's eyes and ears on Rachel, you know, like they can see she had made a wrong turn. They were in contact with her via the phone, like everything's going fine. Investigator Ryan Pender parked at Meridian Park to monitor Rachel's wire from there. And at 6.44 p.m., Danello and Andre called Rachel again, and she told them that she was pulling into the park right now, but she ended up not making the right turn and continued to drive past the park. So she don't, she don't know where she's going. An officer notified investigator Ryan Pender that Rachel did not pull into the park, and other officers later said that they thought the investigator had eyes on Rachel this whole entire time. But unfortunately, at this point now, no one did. At 6.46 p.m., the investigator told the other officers, quote, uh, I lost her. So Rachel's other wire ended up failing, and they had no other audio surveillance of her, but Rachel at the time didn't have any way to know this. You know, like, you don't know that your wires have failed, and you don't know that the police can't see you. Yeah. In her, in her mind, she thought the police could still hear her from both the wires, and she thought that they were following her in the cars. Did they try calling her again? So the investigator tried to call Rachel multiple times, but she did not answer. And that's because she was on the phone with Danello and Andre. She ended up getting off the phone with them and saw that the investigator had called her, but Rachel had just spoken to him when she made the wrong turn. So she assumed that the police were still tracking and could hear everything. So she didn't call back because it had been like two minutes. Like it wasn't even, she thought they were just in sync. This is so sad. They, I mean, they should have stopped this the moment something went wrong. A hundred percent. Trust. I mean, I, I would be skeptical, but like, I could see where you would trust police officers. Like, they do that all the time. You know? Oh, mm -hmm. I would. I'd be trusting the police officers. It's a hundred percent the police officers' issue that yeah. like shit's going down right now, and they they're not stopping anything. 
I think they should have called it off when they kept changing the location for like the third or fourth time. Like I get, I'm assuming it's common to like change the location last minute for, you know, their precautions. This, this shouldn't have happened. The bust should have never occurred because Rachel was a crappy CI. She told everyone she was a CI. And then, True. and then they decided to set up a buy bust with felons, like hardcore felons, to purchase a gun. So anyways, around 6.46 p.m., one of the special agents was driving past the plant nursery and spotted the two targets in a BMW. And to get to them, he had to like make a U-turn. So just as he was making a U-turn, he saw Rachel slowed down to follow the two targets. She was gonna follow them to the new spot that they had picked out. All three of them, Danello, Andre, and Rachel, in their own cars, passed this special investigator just as he was turning around and he wasn't able to see them that they were leaving. So he did not know that Rachel was now following the targets in the complete opposite direction. So when he arrived at the plant nursery, of course, like everyone was gone. No one was there. So literally at this point, not a single person has eyes or ears on Rachel. Rachel and the targets were about two miles north of every law enforcement officer and thanks to the dense tree covers, as we talked about, the DEA plane circling overhead was basically useless. So at 6.48 p.m., Rachel followed the targets as they made a left turn onto a dead-end road called Gardner Road. The targets were leading Rachel to this road. It was a dirt road surrounded by an undeveloped farmland, so it was very, like, out, out there. There was nothing happening in my eyes is obviously a red flag for Rachel, but you know, she still thinks that the police have eyes and ears on her. So she's like, I'll be fine. I'm okay. Me and dirt roads and dead ends in the middle of nowhere. I'm thinking, dear God, this is all going to go wrong. And boy, oh boy, does it. The other officers at this point were about three miles away at the park, waiting for investigator Ryan's orders. At the same time, the investigator called Rachel and ended up like getting through to her. She told him, quote, I followed them from the nursery. We're on Gardner. It looks like the deal is going to go down here. It's a dead end street. And during this phone call, investigator Ryan radioed the other officers and told them that Rachel was at the end of the road called Gardner, was following the targets right now. Investigator Ryan claimed that he told Rachel to turn around and to not follow the targets. And then the call ended. He later stated that he had no response from Rachel, which meant she had hung up or we had quote unquote lost signal. But at this point, no one had eyes on Rachel. The DEA plane that would have been able to see Gardner Road wasn't in the right spot. And so none of the 19 officers, 19 officers that were supposed to be watching this deal go down were able to do so. And only one of them knew where Gardner Road was. At 6.49 p.m., Rachel most likely arrived at the end of Gardner Road. The police were four and a half minutes behind her. And at that time, investigator Ryan Pender radioed, quote, she's probably with them right now in the car, so we need to move quickly, end quote. We don't exactly know what happened during those four and a half minutes, but we do know this. Rachel, who thought police were on top of her the entire time, probably thought she was safe when she parked her 2005 Volvo at the end of Gardner Road. This car was a gift from her father, and her father was back home in Palm Harbor with no idea that the Tallahassee Police Department left its only child to be murdered by two known felons. It's very clear that once Rachel parked her car, she was approached by Danello and Andre, had no intention of selling any drugs to her, 
and there's a good chance that the two men checked out Rachel's purse, most likely to rob her of the $13,000 when they saw the police wiring, which to remind you was not even working the entire time. We know that at this point, the two targets took out the semi-automatic gun that the police department had told Rachel to buy from them. And we know that they aimed the gun at Rachel and shot her three times in the chest and twice in the head. One of the shots actually tore off one of her fingers as she put her hands up to shield herself. It was said later on that Rachel was crying out for help as she was killed and she cried out from, for help from the police department who had promised they would be on top of her the entire time and who also said that the worst thing that could happen from this would be her being fake arrested. But when she cried out, obviously no one was there to hear her. So one of the killers took off in the BMW and the other put Rachel's body in the backseat of her own car and followed the other one out. By the time the Tallahassee police got to Gardner Road, everyone was gone. They found a single black flip-flop, tire marks, one used round of ammo, two live rounds, and six cigarette butts. But they didn't find Rachel or the target's vehicle, and there were no signs of them anywhere. A few hours later, let me say that again, a few hours later, police found Rachel's iPhone in a roadside ditch miles away from Gardner Road. And by 3 a.m. that same night, police were banging on Rachel's boyfriend's door, barking questions at him, asking if he knew where she was. Because in their minds, for some reason, they thought that maybe she ran off with the money. But her boyfriend had obviously not heard from Rachel, and he thought that she was still with the police. And when he asked where she was, an officer told him, quote unquote, she was with us until shit got crazy. Shit got crazy. <laughs> shit got crazy. <laughs> Who's also, you don't say that as an officer to somebody, you know, like that's crazy. Yeah. At 2 a.m. the next morning, so now we're a day ahead, the police called Rachel's parents, Margie and Irv, and told them that Rachel was missing and that they should get to Tallahassee as soon as possible. The police didn't get, give them any more information other than that, or even mention that Rachel was working as a CI. So Margie and Irv and the family's rabbis set out on the four-hour drive immediately to get to Tallahassee. And once they made it to the police station, Irv and Margie were taken to the narcotics unit, not the missing persons unit, where Chief Jones told them that Rachel was missing, but they did not believe she was in danger. Still think she ran away with the money at this point? That's what they're, they're saying. Mm. Even though we found live ammunition. Okay. You know, like that's, that's a sign. Yeah. Uh, Chief Jones also did not mention that Rachel was working as a CI. He told the parents that a search was underway and they should wait at her apartment for further updates. So that's exactly what they did. Her parents kept the news on at the apartment and awaited for any updates from the police. And unfortunately, Margie and Irv actually found out from the news that Rachel had provided assistance during a police operation and that foul play was suspected in her disappearance. Eventually, police found Rachel's car in the town of Perry, and it was under a tree next to a welding shop. Perry is a few miles outside of Tallahassee. The police's victim advocate told the family that they didn't find anything inside of the car, when in reality... This is very frustrating. In reality, the sheer amount of blood that was in the backseat of the car because of Rachel's body ended up saying that the vehicle was considered total and not repairable. You can't tell the parents that nothing was in the car 
And obviously the whole back seat was covered in blood. Like that's just, I feel like that's illegal. Like telling, like lying to them about that. I don't know. It's probably not, but at this point I'm going to say it is because screw the police department in 2007. Yeah. I wonder if it's enough, like you can tell, or sometimes I've seen scenes where there's like a lot of blood and there's enough to say like, okay, this person's definitely not alive, even without a body. I wonder if there was that much blood in there. They said it was enough that the car was totaled. Hmm. Yeah. So I feel like you should tell the parents like, hey, we're probably not going to find your daughter alive. Yeah. Yeah. At some point, don't know how this happened either, but- the police were tipped off that Danello and Andre had fled to Orlando. And so they ended up being found and they were arrested on the 8th. And the following morning around 6.30 a.m., they led police to where they had dumped Rachel's body. So obviously this happened like very quickly. They had dumped her body in a wooded remote area outside of Perry, Florida, where her car was found. And that was about 50 miles southeast of Tallahassee. Rachel's body was covered in a Grateful Dead sweatshirt which the men had found in the trunk of her car and an orange and purple sleeping bag. At that time, her mom, Rachel's mom, Margie was stopping to get food at a Publix grocery store, shout out Publix, and was standing outside alone when she got the call from her husband, Irv. He told her that you need to come back to the apartment. And at that moment, Margie just knew when Margie arrived back at the apartment, the family rabbi had confirmed the horrible news that Rachel was dead and that Margie and Irv's only child had been murdered. Meanwhile, reporters were setting up for a police conference in Perry, Florida, near where Rachel's body was found. Rachel's devastated family and friends watched the news coverage from her apartment back in Tallahassee, and this is where the smear campaign began. Do you think this story is bad? It just keeps getting worse. Rachel's body had not even left that dried creek bed when police got to work trashing her name. As Rachel's body laid just a few yards away, The Tallahassee police's media officer, David McCrane, blamed Rachel's own murder on herself. This is what he said, quote, This morning, a little after six, investigators from the Tallahassee Police Department, along with Mr. Green and Mr. Bradshaw, transported back to Tallahassee, led us to Ms. Hoffman's body. She is deceased. We are seeking additional charges against the two of them for the murder. The family is obviously suffering. They're a primary concern right now. They're aware of our situation and our heart goes out to them. Some things I do want to tell you about Ms. Hoffman. Hoffman was a good person. She was cooperating in an investigation with the Tallahassee Police Department Vice Unit. We had established protocols in place to ensure her safety. And at some point during the investigation, she chose to not follow the instructions. She met Green and Bradshaw on her own. And that meeting ultimately resulted in her own murder, end quote. Love it. So basically they said it was all Rachel's fault and that she didn't listen. And that's why she was killed. But get this, the smear continues. So, you know, the show 2020, they actually did an episode on Rachel's case and I haven't watched the episode. I watched clips from it, but I kind of, I'm like curious now because the clips that I saw were like really good. And in the episode, the host, Brian Ross, he went like pretty hard on police chief Jones from Tallahassee, which is great. So this is what police chief Jones said about Rachel's murder and how the Tallahassee police department handled the case. Quote, the officers were in the area where Rachel was, but from my understanding, there were no eyes on her at that point. Even though she was making a lot of mistakes, it would have been ideal for the officers to shut down the whole thing. 
I haven't asked that question to the officers of why they didn't shut it down because that's what we're trying to find out with this whole investigation. When I'm given that opportunity to ask the question, I'll ask the question. We know that the plan we had in place was deviated from. There was a change of plans, and unfortunately, Rachel decided to deviate from that plan. She did not meet at the predetermined location. I wouldn't say it's her fault, but everyone feels like we're looking to blame her. But she did deviate from the plan, end quote. And she didn't deviate from the plan. She was following instructions from the two guys. At no point did she do her own thing, like at all. No. Also, just imagine being in this scenario, you know, like being Rachel. Like, I would do any, if the two guys were like, yeah, we're going to this park, I'd be like, okay. (laughs) This is ridiculous. So Chief Jones later said that his department was also not responsible for her death. The department went on to say in interviews that Rachel was a criminal, even though she had never been convicted of any of her crimes. And they were very, they heavily implied that Rachel brought this whole thing upon herself because she had originally broken the law. But yet, just remember, Rachel never spent a day in court. In another interview, Chief Jones had this to say about Rachel's history. Quote, Rachel Hoffman was committing crimes in the city of Tallahassee. Yes, she was. She was no innocent person. This 23-year-old woman was a college graduate, and she was making a living off of selling illegal drugs. And as my job as police chief is to find these criminals in our community and to take them off the street. Let me make a note that this is not unusual to make known drug users or offenders operate to assist police in narcotics and investigations. Rachel was no exception. Our hearts go out to the Hoffman family, and we are not smearing Rachel's name. I am describing Rachel as a criminal, yes, because she is. She was arrested for crimes. She was in a drug aversion program. I'm not calling her a drug criminal, but I'm calling her a criminal. If a person is selling drugs or using drugs, then they're violating the law, end quote. Okay, like two or three things. First of all, yeah, he is smearing her, mm-hmm. obviously. Mm-hmm. Second off, he's like, my job is to get these criminals off the streets. Hard no, criminals. No, you put her on the streets. <laughs> you actually put her back in the streets. Like, like she didn't even get arrested. <laughs> she was never, remember, she was never arrested. They immediately, like, did the search warrant on her home, and they were like, CI or no CI. Like, she was never even arrested. So, like, the fact that, like, he's, like, hardened criminals off the street. And then they put her into, they like you said, they literally put her on the street. Yeah, he's just trying to make her seem worse than she is. So, people are like, oh, well, I mean, she was a criminal. So, like, obviously. Obviously, like, we're going to, we'll go into this. But, like, it's important to keep this in mind, too, in this country. You know, hot tip. This is another hot tip for the day. We have a constitutional right to due process. And we are constitutionally protected from cruel or unusual punishment. So Rachel was literally sentenced to death, basically. You know, she was murdered for crimes that she was never convicted of. They, The police department saw this as an opportunity to take advantage of, like, this young girl. And they used it for, like, satisfaction and rewards for their department. Like, Rachel never even got to speak to an attorney. And the police basically robbed her of her right of due process. You know, like, everything they did was illegal. Everything. They used her for sure. (laughs) And as you heard in the quotes above, they said that Rachel was making a living off of selling drugs, which is like not true whatsoever. First off, Rachel's dad basically paid for most things in her life, like rent and her car while she was going through school. And Rachel was not selling even enough to pay. Like she wasn't selling enough weed to even pay for bills. Police initially tried to say that she was selling 35 pounds of weed a month. 
which if that was true, Rachel would have been taking home like a million to a million and a half dollars in 2007, which is very clear to everyone who knew her that she did not live that kind of lifestyle and it made no sense whatsoever. And the police had no evidence at all. So like, I don't even know where they got that number from. Many people in the Tallahassee community were blown away and infuriated with how their local police department essentially let Rachel be murdered. The police should have moved in as soon as the plan deviated. They knew how like dangerous this operation was, and yet they chose to do nothing. Students at Florida State University held a march in Rachel's honor to protest the police handling of the case and the government's war on drugs. Rachel was laid to rest on May 13, 2008, and given a Jewish burial. Over 800 people attended the funeral, showing respect and for how loved she was. Her family and friends used butterflies as a symbol to remember her. An internal investigation into the Tallahassee Police Department and how they handled Rachel's case was performed. And this is crazy because this is actually good. But they found that officers had committed 21 violations in nine, nine separate policies, which unfortunately, but normally when a police department does investigations on themselves, they're like, oh, no, we found nothing wrong. Like, we didn't do anything wrong. No violations were done. But obviously, they came back and said, like, tons of shit happened. This should have never existed. And you would think after hearing this, there would be punishment or consequences. No, nothing happened. Rachel, at some point, had told one of her friends named Lisa that she was working as a CI, another person. And after her death, Lisa told investigators that one of the officers asked Rachel out for a drink during the bust. Rachel told the officer no and that she had a boyfriend and the officer became mad. The internal investigator said that they asked every officer if they had ever asked Rachel out. And of course, all of them replied no. But like, what were they what were they going to admit to that? Like what? It, so that's just a fun fact. And then you remember the main investigator, Ryan Pender? Well, he actually was fired after Rachel's case, but he ended up getting a job working for the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission. And he was the only person from the entire police department that was fired as a result of Rachel's murder. No other officers were suspended or reprimanded, but Ryan appealed his dismissal in Florida. In court, he blamed all of all, everything, all of the actions on Rachel. He actually started crying in the court for himself and his job. He said things like, to get my career back that I worked eight and a half years for, or I learned a tremendous amount more than I thought I would learn for this, which like, what a douche. Like, I just can't, can't stand him. Can't stand any of them, but especially him. And then this is fun. Just a few months after he was fired, an arbitrator ruled that Ryan should be reinstated. So not only was he rehired to the same police department, but they also decided to give him back pay. At some point, a law called Rachel's Law was proposed to tighten restrictions on the use of confidential informants and to protect them better. The original version of this law wanted to ban the use of juveniles as confidential informants, which is great, not use people in drug treatment programs, which was illegal anyways, and to give CIs a right to legal counsel, another thing you would just think would happen. The law also wanted to introduce offense parities, so like low-level dealers wouldn't be used to bust traffickers or these drug felons that have a history of violence, which makes sense. And at some point, police lobbying groups pitched a hissy fit over this proposed law, and they said that the bill passing would, quote, 
be the end of law enforcement, end quote. The law ended up having to be watered down in order to get passed, and it did get passed, and it was on May 7th, 2009, which was exactly two years after Rachel's murder, and it was signed into law by the Florida governor. The law requires police to adopt reasonable protective measures for CIs, which who knows what that even means anymore. It gives the CIs opportunities to talk to an attorney before signing anything, and it submits information on CIs annually to the United States Department of Law Enforcement. So in the end, Danello Bradshaw was found guilty of first-degree murder and given life in prison without the possibility of parole. Andre Green later worked out a deal with the police to plead no contest to second-degree murder and robbery with a firearm in exchange for the death penalty being taken off the table. He ended up receiving life in prison without the possibility of parole as well. Rachel's parents filed a wrongful death lawsuit in the city of Tallahassee, and in 2012, the city settled with them for $2.6 million and issued a formal public apology. And that is the murder of Rachel Hoffman. I feel like we could talk for like three hours about how livid we are with the police department. Writing this story, I was like, the story ended up being like nine or 10 pages when I was writing it. And I was like, I feel like I could just go off on i mean i did obviously there were like three points three or four points in there where i'm like all right due process people let me tell you about the laws of this you know like because there's so many things wrong with this case i 100 110 percent in 2007 blamed the tallahassee police department drug court is like a specialty court to keep you from going to jail you instead go to drug court the whole like goal of drug court is to keep you away from people that are dealing drugs and keep you from using drugs. And so it's literally illegal. It's illegal for her to be a CI in drug court. It's ridiculous. I will say not that this is a good outcome or anything, but you guys remember at the beginning where I said that one of her favorite, Rachel's favorite accessories was a purple fuzzy hat. There's a Florida festival Like, I think it's like a one or two day festival that happens every year and it's called like the fuzzy hat convention and it's a music festival and everybody like wears purple fuzzy hats and like celebrates the life and shit like that. Like, it's supposed to be really like an adorable thing. It's really small, but I I just like that that was part of it, you Mm -hmm. know, to carry like her legacy. That's a frustrating story for you guys. I hope you all go into black holes today. And with that, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Over My Dead Pod. If you want even more information, including photos and sources of the case, you can check out our blog at OverMyDeadPod.com. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you're listening to this and check us out on social media at OverMyDeadPod. And we will see you next week with another thrilling case. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. All right. Well, do you guys want to jump right into overtime? If you haven't seen it, which you probably haven't, but if you haven't seen it, don't listen to And, and if you're going to watch it, don't listen to us because we're going to go into it. But there is a new docuseries. And I think, is it just called Twin Flames or Twin Flames Universe? Escaping Twin Flames, I think. Escaping Twin Flames. And you know, your girls here love a good uh, cult story. It's some crazy shit. I'm not going to lie. This one in particular, like I was watching it with Cameron and Cameron the entire time because he's not normally a cult like watcher and stuff like that. Of course, I'm obsessed. And the entire time Cameron was like, I don't understand how these people are in this or like believe in it and stuff like that. And I'm like, yeah, that's how a cult works. Like you get (laughs) drug into it.
I think so. the weirdest part is that it's entirely online or I guess we saw yeah. that they had a retreat but like this whole thing is on Facebook and Zoom yeah yeah and they had like one meetup I think or yeah. at least one they showed in the doc so that's the weird yeah. part to me that is odd I was just it it was like so I was the girl was like so I was done with it I was done and then she just like it showed then you know the screen shows her like unfollow unfollow on Facebook and I was like oh that was pretty easy <laughs> I guess I get like friend you know it's like feel like they're leaving their friends and like stuff the gist of it right okay so or a husband and a wife decided that they were going to teach people how to find their twin flame twin flame meaning like the person you're supposed to be with the person that like god or higher up partnered you with for life like that's supposed to be your twin flame your second half and they thought they were twin flames so they decided they were going to teach people on zoom and on Facebook, how to, how to find your twin flame. Well, shit went to shit and it's a weird, like the docuseries is very weird. Cause you're right. I remember texting Kylie and I was like, Cam and I are watching it. And she was like, just you wait, like it gets weird. And after the first episode, you're like, ah, this is really interesting. And then the second happens, you're like, what's going on? And then by the third, you're like, dear God, <laughs> how are people in this? But like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to like fully give it away, but I definitely think we have like thoughts on it. It's shit. Shit went to shit. I guess we can talk about some highlights. I think typical cult behavior, of course, the leader starts to dress differently and grow his hair out to look like Jesus. He compared himself to God, didn't he? Yeah. And they were going through, I guess, IVF and they were having, you know, the second coming of Christ. And I think the funniest part for me was the one lady in the cult who's like, Oh, that was the moment I was out because I'm Jewish. Yeah, I don't believe. <laughs> yeah, she was like, "Never mind, you can't find my my twin flame." You're. He compared himself. He was. He was like, "There's a picture of me, but it's actually Jesus. It's not me, but you thought it was me." And I'm like, "No, you just grew your hair and beard out. Like, what are you?" And so they. Yeah. He was like, "I'm the second coming." of christ and the jewish lady was like we don't even think there was a first one so like i'm out of here you know like this is oh that was the breaking point and i think it said in the beginning that she her name was like something completely normal and she changed her name to like something that sounded like shalia shalia whatever it was yeah Yeah. her name's like amanda or something i don't know yeah so basically these two people taught people how to find their twin flames flame they would be like "Mm, we're manifesting your twin flame oh it's this guy bob he lives in illinois you need to like go and be with him forever well the weirdest story for me that came out of this is there was this poor girl and she was told that this guy was her twin flame he wanted nothing to do with her and so the leaders of the cult said oh no he's your twin flame you need to do anything and everything to be with him so they told her to basically stalk him and she ended up getting restraining orders again and this whole time this poor girl who you can tell has some type of disability is being told by these cult leaders like he loves you like you're just not putting enough action in and she's like i'm doing every i'm following him places i have a restraining order she ends up going to jail for a little bit because of she violated her restraining order against him and this whole time they're telling her like oh it's your fault that you got caught like you need to stalk him basically The other part that like Cam and I were like, whoa, this is getting weird. They were teaching people that their twin flame 
could be the same sex partner even if they didn't know that they were like into that so they were telling females that hey your twin flame is another female you're but, a divine masculine or but, but one of you is a divine masculine and one of you is a divine feminine and they're and like so, oh we didn't really feel like that and they're like well you are so yes yeah. it's like if one of us literally it would be like holly your twin flame is kylie but kylie is the divine masculine so kylie you need to transition into a masculine Wait, why do I get to be the masculine? I don't no choice. The masculine. No choice. Cult leaders told you to do so. So like that's the, that was literally, this is <laughs> part of the story. And so part of, I think it was like the third episode where they really dug into that, where it was like, they were telling same sex couples who were never same sex couples before, um, you know, that they were gay. And then they told them to transition. And a lot of them transitioned in the cult obviously at the very end now they're all like regretting it or like most of them are and stuff like that but it's just what a documentary like this is a different type of cult because it is like you guys said it's all online it's all on zoom and facebook so like well and also most of the time you hear about these cults later after someone's gone to jail or you know hurt themselves but this is a big point this is a big point to make right now is lady and ladies and gentlemen, this cult is still happening. This is an ongoing cult. Yeah. It, it still exists. You can sign up for it. Also the funniest thing, one of the funniest things to me was um, just like all the confirmation bias that all these people had, you know, they were like, Oh um, yeah, we're also like having another kid or we're having a kid and you know, she's coming into the world. And I think they ended up losing the kid and they were like, Oh, well she's, that's because she's going to, she's decided she's going to stay in the astro realm of the world. And then they start running out of people to like find their twin flames for. So they're like, start pairing them up with other people. Like Kate said, even if they're, I think they had like a, like an unequal of male to female ratio in their classes. And so they just started like pairing these people. Pairing same sex. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was just like anything to continue what they're saying. Like if one thing didn't work out, they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's like, that's what we were deciding from the very beginning. Like, you know, we knew that. I do want to say, though, too, because you brought up the whole the two leaders who we just call the cult leaders, but the two leaders that are married, they in the show, they talk about going through IVF. And now to the world, they're telling people that they're going through IVF, not because they can't get pregnant, but because they want a specific, they want a girl. And it's because this girl is supposed to be their third twin flame, which like, to me immediately got creepy vibes. I was like, Oh God. Well, at some point they said they were pregnant and then they lost the the child. But in what they told the world was that the child decided to stay in the astral realm and didn't want to make her appearance on earth but all of us were sitting there watching the TV and we're like, so you had a miscarriage. Like, it's really, it's like sad shit, you know? Like, it's, but they're portraying it in such a different manner. And so. I think another favorite part was when they're showing off how much money they made. He's like, oh, I'm just like sitting in my Porsche. Like, let me show you around my Porsche. Here's my giant mansion. Yeah, here's my pool. pool and young Versace baby clothes when they were going to have that baby. I I knew that was going to go wrong right when they did. I was like, these people are sitting there, like can't even afford anything. And you're like, oh, look at this, you know, like. But did you guys notice the location? They were like in the middle of nowhere, Illinois or something like that. And I was like, yeah, well, we could all probably afford a mansion in the middle of nowhere. Oh, yeah, yeah. They were in Michigan, I think. Yeah. And they're trying to get people to move out there to Michigan and like build a church. In a trailer. 
Yeah. 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 It started out as like a matchmaking service and then it definitely oh turned into a church cult. And I forgot. We, what we, they, didn't, even, we didn't even what talk did about that. What they doing at the end? They, they, started, doing they like, were turning it into a church so yes, that they, they didn't have doing, to pay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They filed yeah. to make it like a nonprofit church, whatever status. But then the okay, but then do we remember food company? The, the food company, the, the what was it? The divine diet, or I don't know, something. <laughs> but like the cult leaders started these off programs that were like the divine diet, and they taught you how to eat, but it was all foods to get you fat because they were trying to get all the like the women to be fat. It, it it made no sense, but then they were getting taxed for all this, so they decided to make the twin flame universe a church. So then it became religious and like God was telling you that this is your partner, but wait, I'm Jesus. I'm the second coming of Jesus. Crazy. The series like progresses. You can see like the woman, the wife, like slowly get bigger and bigger. I noticed it right away. Even before they started all the diet stuff, I looked at Cameron and I was like, the wife's getting bigger and bigger. And he's like, yeah, she is. And I was like, this is going to be some weird, like sexual thing. Mm -hmm. Like, and then it, yeah, we recommend it. It's called Escaping Twin Flames on Netflix. Let us know if you watch it or if you already have watched it, what your opinions are, because we'd love to chit chat with you about it. But not something I'd be interested in, especially this one. This is not a, you know, like Kylie lives down the street from the Scientology Center. Okay. And now that's interesting enough where I'd be like, maybe I want to infiltrate, but this is not a cult that I would infiltrate. You already have your, your, married you have a twin flame oh yeah that's right maybe maybe i don't maybe Maybe he's not your twin flame. maybe he's not my twin flame maybe it's holly maybe Maybe. and and i'm the femme Um, plot twist i mean i don't know plot twist you think that though no one's no one's told that yet we're gonna have to get that guy to determine yeah 